Welcome to our gathering. It's good to be with you on this Lord's Day. Last Sunday, we looked at the arrest of Jesus in John chapter 18, verses 1 through 12. We learned that the Lord Jesus exercised sovereign control over the entire situation at Gethsemane, where this arrest occurred. We learned that he courageously stepped forward and presented himself to his enemies so that he could be arrested, so that he could move forward with his father's plan of redemption. This morning, we're going to begin to look at John's account of Jesus' trial. The trial narrative or trial of Jesus is recorded in chapter 18, verse 13, all the way through chapter 19, verse 16a. It has two sections. In section 1, we see in chapter 18, verses 13 through 27, John briefly describes what immediately transpired after the Lord Jesus is taken into custody, Um, describes how he was, or who he was taken to, it it describes who he was interrogated by, uh, the highest ranking Jewish authorities, Annas and Caiaphas. So the first section deals with his kind of Jewish trial, if you want to call it that. In the second section, uh, it's chapter 18, verse 28 through 1916a, John describes what transpired at the governor's headquarters between Jesus and Pontius Pilate. And that would be the civil trial or the Roman trial. So he has two trials that take place, one before the Jewish authorities, one before the Roman authorities. Now, once again, it's John's approach to to this entire scenario, and really his approach to his gospel is is just vastly and radically different from that of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Rather than providing his readers with more of a blow-by-blow chronological account, John weaves the events together in an effort to maintain and further elucidate his primary theme, which is the deity and messiahship of Jesus Christ. In, in really both sections, section 1 and 2, he, and we're going to be looking at section 1 today, he, he does this, he, he puts forward the Messiahship and deity of Christ by juxtaposing the perfect courage and faithfulness of Jesus with the cowardice and unfaithfulness of his own right-hand man, Simon Peter. Please take your Bibles and turn to John 18. As I said before, we're going to be focusing on verses 13 through 27. And this great section is is really written like a play or a screenplay, depending on what you prefer. Probably some of you like plays. I know Robin does. Some of us are more screenplay movie people. Uh, But it really is structured in such a way. What John does is, is he bounces between two scenes that are happening simultaneously. And he takes us back and forth between the courtroom to see what's happening with Jesus and over to the courtyard to see what's happening with Peter. And I'm going to present to you four acts. It's like a four-act play. 
But before we get started, we need to pray. Please bow with me. Father, we humbly come before you and first and foremost want to thank you for your faithfulness. Your faithfulness to us in just the daily expressions of it and primarily your faithfulness in Christ, his person and work, the salvation that, that we have obtained by, through the Spirit, by grace, through faith. It's an enduring salvation, a perpetual, a permanent, eternal salvation because you faithfully uphold it. We thank you for your faithfulness and we do humbly begin to acknowledge now our unfaithfulness. We attempt to be faithful, but even on our best days, we fall vastly short. Teach us today from your scripture about the one who is truly courageous, truly faithful. Humble us as we look at his example and that of Peter, who is like us. We pray that you are glorified during this time. Teach us now, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's begin with the first act. Act 1, the opening scene. Annas's place. That's the gentleman's name, Annas. We see this in verses 13 and 14. I'll read it and describe it or exposit it. It says, and this is right after they put him in, in shackles, right after they bind him in verse 12. We see in verse 13, it says, First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Stop there. There's our first act. After being arrested in Gethsemane, that beautiful garden on the, uh, on the hillside of, of the Mount of Olives, Jesus was immediately taken to the place or home of a man named Annas. Annas says in the text, was the father-in-law of the reigning high priest, Caiaphas. Caiaphas. And during a, um, a previous session at the Sanhedrin, which was their kind of their superior supreme court, the Jews' supreme court, Caiaphas had stated that it would be better for one man to die for the people rather than to have the entire nation perish by the hands of the Romans uh, because of some sort of potential Jesus uprising or something of that nature. We see that back in John 11, verse 50. John includes this detail here. He's trying to help us understand pre the previous involvement of these individuals with Jesus. And Annas, the father-in-law of Caiaphas, had served as high priest for about nine years until he was removed from office uh, by the former Roman governor of Judea, uh, Valerius Gratus. Uh, Valerius Gratus was governor before Pontius Pilate. And so this guy did not, Gratus did not like Annas. He had a problem with Annas, and he removed him from, from that highest position in Israel. He didn't like him for a number of reasons, and, 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 and because of that he removes him, but he also replaces him with Caiaphas, the son-in-law. In the same way, former U.S. presidents are still referred to as president. They are, right? You still say President Reagan. You say President Clinton. You say President Obama. You say uh, President Carter. We still say that. We still call them presidents. 
And in a similar way, the former high priests of Israel were still referred to as high priests. So he's still called the high priest, even though he's not actively holding the position here. He's being called it because he had that role before, similar to our presidents. Annas, however, was still recognized as the active high priest by loyalist Jews who despised Roman interference in their religio-political affairs. Okay, so it was, it was Gratus, a Roman official, who removed Annas, which loyal Jews did not like any Roman interference. And so that act, to many loyalist Jews, they saw it as that's not legitimate because that's not a Jewish affair, that's a Roman interfering with our affairs, and that, therefore we do not honor that decision. And so they still thought of Annas as the high priest. In other words, it was like a shared throne between him and his son-in-law, Caiaphas. Annas was, according to history, he was a, a proud, a very, very proud man. He was an extremely ambitious man, and he was incredibly greedy, very greedy. He literally set things up so that he would profit from the concessions in the temple. He literally received percentages from the sacrificial animals that were sold at ridiculously high prices. Now bear in mind, when Jewish pilgrims would come into the city and go to the various festivals where they had to, you know, or, or every year where they had to bring an animal sacrifice, what would happen is they'd come through the gates and the Jewish authorities would see the animals they're bringing and say, those animals aren't up to par, even though they were. That way they could sell new animals to these people who were already broke. It was a racket. And so this guy had set that up, and he would get a percentage from the sale of those animals. And one of the ways that he really lined his pockets was by disqualifying all the animals that came in regardless of their shape. Remember, animals had to be spotless and without blemish in these things, and people knew their law, but those animals weren't good enough. And he also profited, and this was another scam, he also profited from the money changers. And the outer court at the temple would be lined up with these money changers. They would be money exchangers. You would come in with foreign money, and they would say, in order for you to pay your Jewish temple tax, you had to pay with Jewish money. And so if you came in with Roman money, you had to have it converted. And there were percentages that were charged for these conversions. And this guy was getting a percentage of that money as well. And sometimes people actually came in with Jewish money to pay their tax, but those coins, remember, they didn't have paper money. They had coins and silver and gold coins and these sorts of things. And, and sometimes those coins would be looked over and they wouldn't be up to par, and they would say, that coin's not good enough to use. You must exchange it for one that is, and we're going to charge you a percentage for that. So there was all, all sorts of scamming going on at the temple. And, and this guy, Annas, and pretty much all the high priests were profiting from it. He was lining his pockets. He was very, very wealthy because he was very greedy. Alfred Edersheim, uh, he's a great kind of Jewish, uh, he's, he's a believer, he's a messianic Jew, but he's also a historian, a phenomenal one. He tells us that Annas' greed was so infamous, uh, the outer courts of the temple where those transactions were conducted became known as the Bazaar of Annas. And so this is, this is just how greedy he was. It was like a Annas' strip mall. Come on in and shop at Annas' strip mall. Then you can make your sacrifices. He was making money. Now, I just want you to think about that for a moment. He's profiting from what 
takes place, the transactions that happen at the temple. He had a special hatred for Jesus. Why? Because Jesus had cleared that temple twice, ruined all the money exchanging, ruined the sales of all the animals. Two times on two occasions, at the beginning of his ministry, he came into the temple, saw that they turned it into a strip mall. It was Vintage Fair Annis' Mall, fashioned a cord, whipped all the money changers and, and merchants out of that place and, and hollered that they had turned that place into a den of robbers or thieves. It was supposed to be a place of prayer. He did it twice. That had a direct impact on Annis' bank account. That had a direct impact on the Sanhedrin, which was making money off of this thing. It had a direct impact on Caiaphas. He had disrupted the business operations on two occasions. You can see that in John chapter 2, 13 through 16, and Matthew 21, uh, 12 through 13. And William Barclay, the Scottish theologian, suggests that Jesus was brought to Annas' place first, deliberately, so Annas could, quote, gloat over the capture of this disrupting Galilean, end quote. That's the first act. Jesus has been arrested, and now he's been taken to Annas' place. Annas' palace is probably more like what it was. And Annas knew exactly who Jesus was, and he had a grudge with him, and he was looking to settle a score here. Act 2 the courtyard, and first cowardly response of Peter. We see this in verses 15 through 18. I'll read it. Remember, Jesus is inside the courtroom, inside the living room of this guy, and this is what's happening at the exact same time outside. It says, Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest, but Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl, who kept watch at the door, and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, "'You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you?' He said, "'I am not. I am not.'" In verse 18, now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold. And they were standing and warming themselves, right? They're standing by the fire, a little weenie roast, some marshmallows, some s'mores. They're standing there by the fire. And it says, Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. End of text. Now, despite his incredible display of bravado, back in Gethsemane, right, in attacking Malchus. We see that in verse 10. You remember what happened with Peter, right? This is just moments earlier. He draws his sword and takes a swipe at the officials who were there to arrest Jesus. Despite his bravado in attacking this man, Peter had fled into the dark, shadowy mountainside with the other disciples just as the Lord was being taken into custody. So right at the moment that he slices his ear and Jesus heals his ear, and then Jesus is placed in handcuffs, the disciples scatter and run, including Peter. Matthew 26, verse 56. But it says in the text here in John, Peter and another disciple, probably John. In fact, I'm pretty confident that it's John. John is the author of this gospel, but he never identifies himself by name. 
Peter and another disciple, probably John, decided to follow Jesus and the arresting party at a distance. So what happens is, Jesus is arrested, they take off running, these guys hide behind a tree, the others go further, the arresting party turns around, walks back through the gate at Gethsemane, heads up the hill to go uh, down the hill, and then back up a little bit to go into the city, and these guys are following at a distance, Peter and John. And it says they, they came to the home of Annas. It was walled with a gate, and it featured a large courtyard. And after Jesus and the arresting party entered the premises, the other disciple, probably John, also entered because he was somehow connected to Annas. He knew the high priest. And I read some commentary on, on how he might have been connected. You know, he was part of a, a wealthy fishing business. His father owned a uh, wealthy, uh, successful fishing business, and it is believed that, that that fishing business, his father provided fresh seafood for the high priest and all that, so there's potentially some connection there, but he, he's definitely known by the high priest, the scripture says here. We just don't know exactly how. Peter, however, was stopped at the gate by the doorkeeper. So these two are walking in after the arresting party, one goes in because he's recognized, the other one is stopped, and he's now outside, wanting to get in, I guess. And notice the details here. It says the, the doorkeeper was a slave girl. You see that? This special little detail shows that this scene took place at Annas' house, at his home, rather than at the temple complex or at the Sanhedrin, where only men manned such posts. You've got a slave girl running the gate. That's not normal at any of the religious institutions, but at someone's home, it was normal. And so now we can tell this is, this is taking place somewhere other than where it should be taking place. Court hearings and trials were never held at night, nor at homes. Never. Could you imagine how bizarre that would be in this day and age? That you've committed an infraction and you have to report to some judge's home at one in the morning. You'd be like, I'm not going to that. I'm going in daylight, Monday through Friday, and I know right over here on 14th or H or whatever street it's on, J Street, I don't know, 10th Street. No, 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 no. Court hearings and trials were never held at night, and this is night. They were never held at homes. They occurred during the day, during literally normal business hours, at the temple complex or at the Sanhedrin, a similar building, before the active high priest, not a former high priest. There might be former high priests there giving wisdom and helping make judgments, but the former high priest literally did not have the authority to even be doing what he's doing here. So, so what was happening here was completely, literally illegal. A literal kangaroo court. And that's not a kangaroo that has a bunch of kangaroos running around in it. People wonder, what is a kangaroo court? What does that literally mean? Is that an Australian court? No. A kangaroo court, by definition, is an unofficial court held by a group of people in order to try someone regarded, especially without good evidence, as guilty of a crime or misdemeanor. 
In other words, a kangaroo court is not a court that's there to actually listen to witnesses and to literally figure out whether a person is innocent or guilty. A kangaroo court is there to pronounce them guilty no matter what. The, the decision of guilt has already been made. Now we just have to find a way to make it stick. The other disciple, probably John, realized that Peter had not entered. And he goes over to the gatekeeper, this young slave girl, I suppose, and he goes to vouch for Peter. Well, well, I know him. You can let him in with me. And she recognizes both of them as Jesus' disciples. Because she says, you're also one of his disciples, right? So when John and Peter went in, or Peter attempted to, she knows that John is potentially a disciple of Jesus, but yet she knows that John knows the high priest, and, and she lets him go through. This wasn't the case with Peter. With Peter, John goes and vouches for him, and yet she still stops him at the gate and says, you also are one of his disciples, aren't you? She begins to question him. Why did she single him out? She knew John was a disciple, and yet she said nothing to him. Why did she single him out? Well, I think it's because he wasn't known by the high priest. John was. Remember the detail. And somehow, because John knew the high priest, the slave girl let him pass through, even though she knew he was probably a disciple. Peter, however, was unknown. His, he was a fisherman as well. Apparently, his fishing business wasn't as lucrative. He didn't have the connections that John may have had. I think that's why. And literally before letting him enter, she, she questions him. You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? You certainly appear to be. And he says, I am not. I am not. Look at his own words. I am not. And this was the first of Peter's three denials the Lord prophesied about earlier that evening when they were all gathered at the upper room, just a few hours before. You remember that scene? Jesus had told his disciples he was leaving and they couldn't come with him. You know, he was returning to the Father. He was going to prepare a place for them in these things. He would send his Holy Spirit for them on Pentecost. And Peter protested, Lord, why can I not follow you now? Why can't I go with you now? It's like, Jesus, I can go with you. Do you not understand that I would lay down my life for you? I'm, I'm all in. I'm, I'm completely sold out. I'm in. And Jesus answered him, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, double emphatic, truly, this is a high truth. Peter, what I'm about to say to you is absolutely true. Pay close attention. I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. John 13, 37 through 38. There's the prophetic utterance. There is the prophecy made about Peter's fickleness and, and cowardice and unfaithfulness. Three, four hours before this actually takes place, Jesus says it's going to happen. Be careful how far you go here with what you say. You're not as committed, as devoted as you think. He denies him. And yet the gatekeeper, the slave gal, pressed the matter no further after Peter's cowardly denial of his Lord and she let him enter with the other disciple. There were servants and officers, literal members of the arresting party, 
When they all went into the courtroom, some went into, or when they all went into the courtyard, some went into the courtroom, the living room, and some stayed in the courtroom. This is the arresting party that's now present inside the house, in the building, and in the courtyard. And, and what happens here is that this arresting party, there's police and, and uh, there's, there's Jewish police there. I don't think there were any Romans there. They wouldn't have let Romans come through the gate because that would have defiled the whole place and, and messed up, you know, their, it would have messed up their ability to participate in Passover, which was happening at this moment. The Romans were made to stay away or they just went back over by where they were stationed in the city. But there's probably a hundred or so, maybe 70 people gathered inside and outside. Some are the police, and they fired up a charcoal fire. I don't even know why he added the detail charcoal. I'm thinking Kingsford, time to get the grill on. And they made this fire because it was cold, and that's another indicator that this took place at night, because during the day it was sweltering. This is a desert region. At night it was cold. Believe it or not, deserts are actually very cold at night, cold enough to kill you, but hot enough during the day to kill you. And, and, and here's the deal. Hoping to avoid another incident and desiring to get warm, Peter walks over and attempts to blend in with this group. <laughs> John probably goes that way. Peter sees a fire and says, well, it's nippy out. He goes over, but he doesn't want to be exposed again. He goes over to the fire and tries to blend in with the law enforcement guys and all of that. He's trying to hang out with the LEs. He's trying to blend in and keep a low profile. He's not thinking that the flickering light from the fire is illuminating his face. And it's just astonishing to me that just moments, just moments earlier, he was standing side by side with Jesus fired up and ready to fight, wasn't he? In fact, he, he, took, he really made the first move and cut the dude's ear off. Moments earlier, he's standing side by side with Jesus. He's all fired up. He's ready to protect his Lord. He's ready to protect the other disciples. He's ready to fight. But here we see him standing side by side with Jesus' enemies near a fire trying to keep warm. Do you see the contrasts that John draws here? You see this explosion in the garden of faithfulness by Peter, totally uncalled for, totally not appropriate to be trying to slice somebody at this moment when Jesus is deliberately working to get himself arrested. But it is still courage. It is still faithfulness to the Lord, even though it's corrupted by his understanding. But you see that in the narrative in the previous verses, and then you see this denial, this betrayal at the gate, and then him aligning himself with the enemies of Jesus, those who just arrested him, trying to blend in. Th these details are here to, to, to reveal to us important truth. We'll, we'll talk about that in a little bit. That's the second act. Act 3, now we bounce back into the courtroom. Act 3, the courtroom and collapse of Annas' unlawful case. Okay, verses 19 through 24. 19 through 24, I'll read it. 
Peter's out there doing his thing. Now we're back inside the room. This is happening at the same time. It says, the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. So he starts grilling him. And Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. 22, when he said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, is this how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Verse 24, Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, (laughs) the high priest. (laughs) This, This trial was a total sham. Not only because of how, where, and when it was conducted, but because Jesus' fate had already been decided. Back in chapter 11, the chief priests, that's the former chief priests who had served in that office, and Pharisees, the, another religious group, they convened a council, and with the aid of Caiaphas, the reigning high priest, they determined that Jesus had to die. Chapter 11, verse 53. The verdict was already in. Again, this is a a kangaroo court. He's already guilty in their eyes. So this had nothing to do with actual court where witnesses are interviewed, legitimate witnesses are interviewed, and evidence is provided to establish either one's guilt or innocence. This was about creating, listen carefully, This was about creating the illusion of due process and putting the veneer of legality on Jesus' murder. That's what this is about. They knew that they couldn't just kill him. There had to be a trial according to their own law. But they had determined to kill him prior to the trial. So this was about creating a veneer of legality about creating the illusion of legal due process. Well, we went through all the motions with him, and we have found him guilty. That's what they're attempting to do. Annas, it says in the text, Annas, the former high priest, questioned Jesus about his disciples and teaching. Okay. What Annas did right here was another violation of Jewish law, as well as a violation of Jesus' rights. Okay, Under their law, a court could not begin by questioning the accused. Have you ever seen that happen in any of our courts? No. If you saw that happening, that case would be thrown out within five minutes. The court cannot begin the trial by, by questioning, by interviewing the accused. In fact, Most often you see depicted in movies and stuff where someone who's accused wants to testify, their lawyer's trying to talk them out of it. They don't want them talking about anything. You just sit there and be quiet. We'll take care of this. But I've got to share my story. You want to go to prison? Go ahead and talk. You may not have done anything, but it'll sound like you did by the time they're done with you, and that is a real good DA. That is a good prosecutor. I suggest you sit down and shut up. Okay. Court never began by interviewing or questioning the accused. 
It had to begin just as our court does today. It had to begin by clearly stating the charges. That's how court begins. Clearly stating the charges. And yet, do you see Annas stating any charges here? No, you see him stating no charges here because there were no charges to state. There was nothing to declare. Nor did he have or provide any witnesses who could corroborate the charges. There's no charges being presented up front. There's no witnesses being called at all through this whole deal. Instead, Annas asked vague, general questions, hoping to uncover a crime to justify the death sentence that had already been decided upon. He's just asking Jesus a lot of things about what he said and did, and he's asking about his disciples, hoping that Jesus will say something that traps him, and that he can say, see! And there was also a kind of Fifth Amendment in place where the accused is protected from having to testify against his or herself. You've seen people plead the fifth. The reason why they do this is because they don't want to incriminate themselves through their own testimony. It's always very frustrating when I see it, because I know you're guilty! You know, well, they don't say anything. Well, Jesus is pleading no fifth here, but there is a fifth in some kind of sense in place to protect him. In other words, you just can't start a trial like this. You can't do it. You're not supposed to do it. It's illegal. In verses 20 and 21, the Lord <laughs> lets Annas know that he is totally familiar with the Jewish judicial process, and he basically asks why Annas is not following it. <laughs> Literally. You're very foolish to go up against the Lord Jesus. My paraphrase of what Jesus said here in those two verses, he said, I've spoken openly to the world in synagogues and in the temple where Jews come together regularly. Nothing has been said or done in secret. In fact, think about all the miracles he did. None of those were done in secret. They were done right out in the public forum. He says, nothing that I've said or done has been done in secret. Why don't you follow the law by bringing in and interviewing some witnesses? Talk to the people who have actually listened to me and saw me do what I do. This is what Jesus tells them. In this single statement, Jesus exposed serious violations committed by Annas and utterly collapses his case, just decimates it. And Annas knew this. He knew. And he was embarrassed. Jesus had just made him look like a major fool in front of a great company of people. Not the Lord's intention. Annas made himself look like a fool because he's the culprit. Jesus just helped him understand the violations he committed. He was embarrassed. He was humiliated. And so was his staff. So was his staff. How do I know some of his staff members were humiliated, were, were embarrassed just as he was? I know so because one of them leans over and punches Jesus in the face. Is that how you speak to the high priest? Punches him right in the face. Is that how you answer the high priest? And the Lord Jesus likely now bleeding from his nose or lips. And I think this is the first physical assault on him this night. 
possibly. I didn't research that, but it very well could be. We know he was assaulted throughout the night. We know that he was pulverized. This could be the first one. Jesus now bleeding from his nose or lips. He leans over, he turns to his attacker, and he reveals the major infraction he just committed. (laughs) He looks over him, it's as if he says, you know you just broke the law. My paraphrase of what he says to this guy, this punchy guy, if I'm wrong about the law, point it out. Testify to it. You're in court. If I'm wrong, if my interpretation of the law is wrong, then then make note of that. This is what he tells him. Testify to it. But if I'm right, and you know I am, Why did you just strike me? Why did you punch me? He's striking a a person, even the accused, was illegal. It was considered assault. According to Exodus 21, if you assaulted your mother or father, you were put to death. Verse 15, if you assaulted a pregnant woman and injured the baby, you were put to death. Verse 23, this country likes to kill babies. Boy, if you injured a woman and then injured the baby that was in her womb, man, you were put to the sword quickly. And if you assaulted anyone else, anyone else with your fist, with your foot, with a weapon of any sort, bare minimum, you were required to pay their medical expenses and lost wages. Verses 18 and 19 of Exodus 21. It was illegal to put your hands on someone, illegal to strike someone. This police officer just assaulted Jesus, and Jesus said, if I'm wrong, testify to it. You know I'm not. Why did you strike me? You just broke your own law. Annas was just super agitated by Jesus' knowledge of the judicial protocol, but it was the Lord's bold willingness to call him and his officer out in front of all these people that led him to literally drop this charade and send Jesus to Caiaphas, his son-in-law. He's just so frustrated by how this thing has played out this evening. It's just like, just get him out of here. Just take him to my son-in-law. Take him to the high priest. Let the high priest deal with him. This is what Annas does. Now, you must understand, I don't see... Jesus in this text defending himself. I see him simply holding those who have been placed in authoritative positions accountable to their own laws. God is very interested in this. He established his laws for the purpose of them being followed. So he's not trying to get himself out of this scenario here. It would appear to be so, but that's not at all what Jesus is trying to do here. Not at all. He was not attempting to avoid his trial and crucifixion. This was all part of the Father's plan. Jesus knew all things, as we've seen that as a repeated theme in John's gospel. He knew exactly what the Father's plan for. He was following it to a T. He was not trying to get out of being held in, you know, bound and held and tried. The son was 
literally condemned Jesus. Speaking of Jesus, the son, Jesus, was to be condemned to death by Jews, but put to death by lawless men, Gentiles, non-Jews. Acts chapter 2, verse 23. That way, all of humanity, Jew and Gentile alike, is responsible for the death of Jesus. In God's infinite wisdom and plan, he has both Jew and Gentile putting Jesus to death to incriminate all of humanity. We are all guilty of this, Jew, Gentile alike. This is why we preach the gospel to the nations, to every tribe and tongue. Every tribe and tongue is culpable for the slaughter of Christ, is culpable for their own sin. God made sure that this would be clear in the way he structured this thing. And at this point in the narrative here, Jesus is simply moving through the judicial process to get to the Gentile judicial process so that everything, everything is fulfilled according to the definite, definite plan of God and foreknowledge of God. It was necessary that he go through this sham of a trial. It was necessary that he go before Caiaphas and in the other Gospels, even before the king of Israel, or the king of Judea, Herod, Antiochus. It was necessary that he go before Pontius Pilate. All of it is part of it. And he's doing that and he's being faithful. He's not trying to get out of it. Act 4, this is happening inside. Now we go back out to the courtyard. Now we go act four, the courtyard and second and third cowardly responses of Peter. We see this in verses 25 through 27. The text says, now Peter was standing and warming himself. Remember where we left off. He's out there next to the fire among the arresting party, among the police or whomever's there. So they said to him, he's by the fire, so they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? <laughs> he denied it and said, I am not. I am not. And then it says in 26, one of the servants of the high priest, uh-oh, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, uh-oh, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it. And at once a rooster crowed. Right there. It's about 3 a.m. is what that means. And I think a bird literally crowed because that's what Jesus said would happen. But this is about 2.33 in the morning, maybe even later than that. So as Annas was finishing up with Jesus, Peter was outside in the courtyard standing with the Lord's enemies, warming himself by a fire. Some of Annas' subordinates recognized Peter as a potential disciple of Jesus. They questioned him, are you not one of them? He replies the second time, I am not. This is that second, uh, second of three denials the Lord prophesied earlier in the upper room. And then within just a few moments, someone else recognizes Peter it was a relative of Malchus, the guy with the missing and restored ear. How terrible for Peter. He looks over at him and says, I am absolutely certain I saw you in the garden. I'm, I'm wondering why you didn't go ahead and say, aren't you the dude that cut off my brother's ear, my cousin's ear, my uncle's ear, my nephew's ear? I saw you back in the garden just a few moments ago. Isn't that you? 
You know, this is, this is a little confounding here as to why Peter's doing what he's doing. I, I'm not convinced that there was an actual real threat against him. It was not at this point illegal to be a disciple of Jesus. That came later. But cutting off someone's ear was illegal. That was assault, right? We just talked about that. You would have to pay for that. In fact, this isn't just assault. This is assault with a deadly weapon, right? In our country, I don't know how much time you get for that. It's probably being reduced. Maybe you get you know, a couple hours in jail now. It used to be you'd go to jail for a long, long time for assault with a deadly weapon. Today, 15 minutes. Anyone want to be assaulted? I'm up. Let's go. I mean, they just don't keep anyone in there anymore. I don't know how I feel about that. But this, he had just committed assault, and, and now you've got potentially a witness to that here. And Peter literally panics and blurts out his third denial. I am not. I don't know him. I wasn't in the garden, man. Matthew records that he also declared rather emphatically, a curse on me if I am lying. I do not know the man. So he didn't just say, I am not. He's literally like, all right, I tell you what, guys. I've already said this three times tonight, two times tonight, my third time. I, I swear to you that God can strike me down if I'm lying about this. I do not know the man. Perfect opportunity from a, for a lightning bolt. And yet one does not come. Matthew 26, 74, he just explodes. He explodes on these guys. He starts calling down curses on himself. You know, cursed be the day that I was born if I'm lying. Cursed be, I mean, it's just like, dude, you're not Job. And, and it wasn't illegal to follow Christ. And you know what? At this very moment, as Peter is attacking himself, <laughs> four extraordinary things happen. Four extraordinary things happen. First, a rooster crowed, just as Jesus had predicted, right? Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times, tough guy. That's not what he said. That's the Phil version. That's the first thing. That prophecy is fulfilled. Second, and it's amazing how Jesus can prophesy one hour and an hour later it comes to pass, or a couple hours. He's God. The rooster crows. That happens. That's the first thing. Second, and this, this to me has is, is, is got to be the most devastating thing. John doesn't tell us about it. Second, Peter's eyes met with Jesus' eyes as Jesus was passing through the courtyard, being led by that arresting party out through the gate. As Jesus is being led out, shackled, tied up, he looks over and he sees Peter during that third denial. And right as that happens, that rooster crows and Peter looks over and he sees Jesus walking out and their eyes lock, their eyes meet. Luke 22, verse 61a. Can you imagine what that must have been like? As the, the third denial is still ringing off of your tongue, 
there is the Lord looking at you. And you are looking at him. It's not some kind of a pass by where you just notice him slip by. Their eyes met. That's, that's where all of these acts in this play come together. That's the second thing that happened. And third thing that happened, this is incredible. Peter remembers the Lord's saying, prophecy that he had made just a few hours earlier. Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. Luke 22, 61b. That's the third thing. Rooster crows. His eyes meet with Jesus. He remembers precisely what Jesus said. And fourth, Peter went out of the courtyard and wept bitterly. Luke 22, verse 62. He wept bitterly. Closing. Through these four acts, John has successfully maintained and further elucidated the deity and messiahship of the Lord Jesus by juxtaposing examples of his perfect courage, his perfect faithfulness. And I'd like to just make note quickly that Jesus showed perfect faithfulness in even his faithfulness to the law by holding the law-breaking religious officials accountable. That's another example of Jesus' faithfulness here. John, I think, completes his mission here and successfully upholds and further promotes the deity of Messiahship of Jesus by juxtaposing his perfect courage and faithfulness as clearly displayed, as clearly seen, as clearly as possibly can be seen in the courtroom with Peter's examples of cowardice and unfaithfulness as clearly seen in the courtyard. What John is basically doing is he's showing us a perfect man. He's comparing a perfect man in Jesus with an imperfect man, Peter. There's how the Messiahship and deity is bolstered. Do you get it? But I want to tell you that John did not employ Peter's examples here to humiliate Peter. Because I don't know about you, but if I go back and read this account, I say, I look really bad here. If I'm Peter, I look at this later, I say, I look really bad here. Wow. But you must understand that Peter was already dead by the time John recorded his gospel account. Some say it was written earlier than the 80s, between 80 and 90, I don't know. But I believe Peter was already dead by the time this was written. Plus, you must understand the unique, beautiful fellowship and friendship that Peter and John shared. All of the early um, evangelistic efforts and, and these sorts of things were really led by Peter and John. We see Peter and John being flogged by the Sanhedrin for preaching the gospel a little later on. They had a very tight-knit, close companionship. These guys were bros. They did ministry together. They, they loved each other. So highlighting 
Peter's cowardice and unfaithfulness was not done to humiliate Peter by any means. John employed Peter's examples to humiliate us in a good way. Like Peter, we, we all have a, a terrible, terrible tendency to think too highly of ourselves, to overestimate our devotion to God, to fail to trust in His Word, to self-preserve and to even deny the one we love. Amen? You see, I've often wondered how Jesus looked when he made eye contact with, with Peter as he was passing through the courtyard. Think about that. What was his countenance like? What did his face look like? Did his face burn with wrath? Or was it as calm as the sound of God walking through the garden after his first image bearer sinned? I imagine it simply was what grace and truth look like. If you could put a, a face on those two massive things, you would see the face of Christ. <clears throat> Jesus' work on the cross would pay the penalty for Peter's cowardice and unfaithfulness. This would happen just the very next day, actually the same day, just later in the day. Peter's utter and absolute cowardice and faithfulness would be atoned for at the very cross that Christ would die on. Jesus' work on the cross paid the penalty for our cowardice and unfaithfulness. Peter was restored to the Lord just prior to the Lord's ascension. The Lord will restore us if, if, we will respond like Peter. His sin, he was a broken man. He wept bitterly. He desired mercy. And that is exactly what the Lord Jesus gave him. You shuffle over to John chapter 21, verses 15 through 19. You see the restoration of Peter by sheer grace and mercy. The year of the Lord is, is ever open to the cry of all who want mercy and grace, J.C. Ryle. If your life is fraught with tribulation, the first thing you must do, I mean, if your life just has a lot of trouble, the first thing you must do is evaluate yourself to make sure that you're not the cause of it. 
I say this because we, I've, I've just never seen victimization as high in our culture as today. Everyone's a victim. And there are some legitimate victims out there, no doubt. But as I analyze my own life, and sometimes it is fraught with great difficulty, as I analyze my own life, as I contemplate, as I kind of search it out, I find that in most cases, I'm the reason. It's my decisions, my poor decisions that lead to such great tribulation at times. We talked about this last week. So self-evaluate to find out why that tribulation is there, and it could be not at all because of what you've been doing. Could be not at all because of what you're doing. And if you're going through things, right, cancer, death in the family, job loss, relational problems, whatever these things may be. And quite frankly, some of us in this very room seem to keep going through these things. They don't get a reprieve. To some, I suppose, Jesus would say, to all, he says, in this life you will have trouble. I think to some, he would say, to some of you, you're going to have even more than regular people. That's not at all what he said, but it seems to be the case with some. The moment they get through one tragedy, another befalls. This happens. And this is not of our own doing so often. And because of this, because of this tribulation, it can be very difficult for us to believe that God is truly faithful. We can feel that we've been left alone, right? We can feel that way. And if you're, have, if you're having any kind of difficulty now in believing that God is truly faithful, look no further than the cross. Sinclair Ferguson said, when you look at a cross, what do you see? You see God's awesome faithfulness. Nothing, not even the instinct to spare his own son, will turn him back from keeping his word. I put that in your bulletin for you. Amen? Do not trust in who you are, in what you know, in what you have, in what you can do, or in others. Trust in Jesus. Trust in Jesus. Do not rely on yourself. Do not rely on your own understanding. Rely on Jesus. For He is perfectly courageous perfectly faithful, just as the text says.